0: So, Titus 3, not, if there was a Silas, we go to Silas 3. Okay, so, so we've been talking about offense. We've been talking about how do we get on offense. We've been talking about how we stay on offense. We've been talking about this offense momentum in the life of the church. It can be easy oftentimes for people in the church, even for churches, to become defenses and just kind of get in a posture where they're just waiting and just trying to survive the storm. And yet there's also a posture where you see that churches are on offense and they're moving forward. They're advancing the kingdom of God. You see people that will come to that church. And they'll be excited, and there'll be health, and there'll be growth going on, and there's things that people look to, and that people go, Wow, I want to be a part of what is going on there. So, we've been talking about all these things related to offense, and tonight I want to speak to you about motivation, especially the motivation that gives us the drive in our Christian life. Now, motivations matter, especially in the Christian life, because if we are driven by the wrong motivations, then oftentimes it'll direct us to the wrong goals. Or if we are instructed or powered by selfish motivations, a lot of times they'll lead to idolatry. And so worldly motivations will lead us to worldly pleasures. And so sometimes we need to take stock to think, what is motivating me? Why am I doing what I am doing? So before you showed up at church this evening, you can think, why did I leave wherever I was at? Why did I travel here to the church? Why did I come in? Why am I here? What is my motivation? Some people say, well, that's just what I do. I go to church. That's part of my normal habit. That's part of my normal schedule. Some people say, well, I'm coming to church because I am in a particular season of discouragement or I'm in a season of crisis, and so I'm looking for help or I'm looking for hope. Sometimes people come to church because of uh, the friendships and the fellowships that they have with the other people in the church. Sometimes people come to church because of uh, there, there's some type of event, something that's happening that they want to come and be a part of. We all have motivations that drive why we do what we do. And motivations are important, especially when it comes to our faithfulness, because at least we can I hope we can be honest with each other. There are some mornings that you don't feel like coming to church. There's some Sunday mornings that you wake up and you think, just another ten hours and I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> you wake up and you think, you know, it it seems like Nine o'clock on a Monday morning seems late. Nine o'clock on a Sunday morning seems early. And you think, why? It's the same nine o'clock, and yet it can be a difference in the day on the calendar will make a difference, because some days we don't want to come to church. Some days we will wake up looking for excuses why we shouldn't go to church, or why we shouldn't be involved. Sometimes you wake up and you think, well, I don't want to read my Bible this morning, or I don't want to spend time in the personal spiritual disciplines this morning because of, and we find an excuse to do what we want to do. And sometimes we wake up up and say, I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to do what God wants me to do, but I'm not going to do anything more. Because you get discouraged. You get seasons where you just kind of feel like you ran out of gas. You get in moments where you feel like you just, you're tired of feeling like the person at the front of the pack, you want, it's time for someone else to take a turn, let me get some rest. In football, we used to do these Indian runs, and I don't know what they call them now. I'm sure they can't call them Indian runs anymore because we've got to be politically correct, but the way these Indian runs would work is that we would take our front and let's say there was 10 of us in a line. We'd be running around the outside of the football field, and let's say the person in the back would have to sprint to the front of the line, and then once he got to the front of the line, then the person at the back would sprint, and so it was this constant revolving deal, and so the coach would tell us, I want you to do 10 Indian runs, which meant that we would take off running and the person, there'd have to be 10 cycles of the person coming back to the front or wherever the case may be. But we'd have to do that and we are constantly running and you would think, well, you know what? I just want somebody to slow down. If we would all slow down, we could go slower. But the problem was is here comes Brandon sprinting by me to the front so everybody naturally picks up their pace because Brandon is running and then Brandon gets in the front and even if he slows down, there's that constant sprinting back and forth and there's that constant moving and sometimes you just feel like i just want everybody just to stop (laughs) just slow down let me catch my breath and just stop and so these motivations play a big influence in why we do what we do or i put here in my notes motivations often dictate our direction so if you just want to be seen then you're just going to do whatever it takes so somebody will notice you. If all you're doing is just to mark a box off, then people will see that you're just here to check boxes off. If you're just here to quit having somebody in the church nagging against you or having the preacher come and nag against you, then the only thing you're caring about here is just to come and go through the motions. But if our motivations are to come so that we might know God better. And that we might better apply His Word to our hearts and lives, then it'll change why we do what we do. So, a couple weeks ago, we are in Titus chapter two, looking about the game plan that God has given for us in these days in which we are in. But in Titus chapter three, He gives us, Paul gives us, some motivation. At least I come to this, and I see that He gives us some motivations. Why should we remain faithful? We're going to look at verse one through verse eleven, and I'm going to point out to you five motivations that I find from the Word of God that motivate me to be faithful. Five things that God's Word talks to us about that I think can be motivations for all of us to say why be faithful why continue to serve why continue to be obedient these aren't dependent upon the weather these aren't dependent upon your feelings these aren't dependent upon your emotions these aren't dependent upon what people say around you so many times our commitment to God is dependent upon your response to me somebody says something mean to me or somebody says something I don't agree with or somebody isn't kind or somebody is not loving and next thing you know I get I get my feelings hurt and I take my toys and I go to the house And say, I'm not showing back up. There are a lot of people, a lot of names that I can mention to you that you could say, yeah, Spence, they used to come here, but they don't come here anymore. And it wasn't because God sent them to the mission field. (laughs) And it wasn't because they've moved into some other form of Christian kingdom service. It's because they got offended and they left. So what keeps us from being driven in the church by our emotions and our feelings and what keeps us by being driven by the truthfulness of God's Word. So my five motivations I want to give you. Let's start in verse 1 of Titus, uh, Silas chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, "Yeah." Well, I'm going to rename this one. I'm going to rename this one. You just mark it out. revelations the counsels against them. Revelation? Revelation. Yeah, there's not revelations, plural. It's just revelation. It's okay. Alright, so, Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good word, to speak evil of no one, to avoid, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So, Paul is continuing this letter to Titus, and he's encouraged Titus, this young preacher, on how to pastor well, and how to serve well, and how to lead people... God's people well. So kind of as he's bringing this to a close, he wants to remind Titus, and this is the first motivation that I think of for me, is that God has a standard. God has a standard. He says, remind them to be submissive. Remember, remind them that there's authorities and rulers that are placed over them. They are to be obedient, ready for every good work. He's reminding them that there are standards that God has for their lives. You think Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37 and 40. The rich young euler asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And all the world. And he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is reminding us that God has standards. God has rules. And God has expectations for us as His people. Some of the things that you'll find for First Peter and other places, that God has standards of holiness and righteousness. Right here in these first two verses, Paul reminds Titus, Listen, there are standards. Standards of obedience and faithfulness. God has standards for all of us. Sometimes we think that we define the standard, but we do not define the standard. We do not define what is right or wrong. We don't define what is good enough. We are simply following God's standard for our lives. And, and sometimes we need to remind ourselves that I am not the one that writes the rule book, that God has written the rule book. It's up to me to follow God's rules for my life. And God has a standard. And we're living in a society where everything is relative everything is relative. Your truth doesn't have to be my truth. Your standards don't have to be my standards. I can do what I want and you have no right to tell me that I'm wrong or that I'm not adding up or I'm not lining up to the standard in life. No. No. God has standards and this world has standards. I've been around too many people that 8 o'clock is when we start work and it's 8.03, 8.04, 8.05 and then later and they show up and they go, they always have A different excuse. They always have something else. I worked with a guy. uh, In fact, I was working with a guy when we moved from down there. And one day, he was late showing up for work, and my boss got a text message, and the text message read, "I'm sorry, I'm late for work. I forgot my phone. I had to go back and get it." I guess it may have been maybe it was after he remembered to go back and get the phone but it was one of those things there was always an excuse and my attitude was is 8 o'clock is 8 o'clock if you have a problem being there at 8 o'clock then maybe you need to be there at 7.30 It's one of those things that if we don't teach that there are standards, then how do we help show them that God has standards? But this world of relativeness and this world of saying that you get to decide your own rules and make up your own things, it all comes in there and Paul says, remember remember Titus and help the other people around you remind them that God has a standard. Because if God doesn't have a standard then there isn't any right and wrong. There isn't any ultimate authority that God has. We're just simply doing what we want to do. And so this first motivation is to remind me that God has a standard. God has set aside a day for me, a special day on the calendar every single week for me to come and worship Him. God has a standard when it comes time to my fellowship and my devotion and my time and my commitments. God has given me 168 hours in a week and then He has said, Spence, I'm going to set aside 5 to 7 hours a week for you to come and fellowship with the people around you. Did you know i said right around 10%? 10% of my time a week. You figure 168 hours, you figure right about 10%, He says, hey, I want you to give 10% of your resources." back to me and then when you think about the time you're not even giving that 10% back to God and yet so many times why well, don't I have time to go to church why well, don't I have time to do this and we forget that God has a standard for us God has a standard for for our lives. Which leads to the second motivation and you start in verse 3. Notice in verse 3, notice what he says. He says, For we ourselves, so Paul is talking about ourselves, he's talking about Titus, Silas, and himself. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. The second motivation that I use to uh, try to help spur myself towards faithfulness is that we fall short of God's Standards. God has a standard for our lives and we fall short of that standard. I am not as good as I give myself credit. You are not as good as you give yourself credit. So many times we think, well I'm better than so and so, really? <laughs> Are you sure? Because every single person is a sinner, wretched sinner in the eyes of God apart from Jesus Christ. Paul says we're foolish, we're disobedient, we're pleasure seekers, we have envy in our heart, hatred in our heart, we strive with one another. This idea that we need to remember that it's not a matter of, well, Jesus needs me, or God needs me, or the church needs me, or look what a blessing I am to those around me. Every single one of us falls short of God's standards. If you don't recognize that you aren't enough without God, then you'll never understand the idea and the gravity of grace and what Christ has done for us. Part of grasping with this idea of grace and mercy and forgiveness is recognizing, is understanding that from Christ I can't be enough I'm not going to be enough I'm always failing I'm stuck in this performance cycle of trying to please someone and trying to uh, try the, the latest performance and the latest trick and the latest show and all these things come and I can try to do it on my own all I want and I will never be enough and Paul wants to remind Titus and he wants to remind the church that God has a standard and they continually fall short of God's standard the intention is not to say you are just a terrible person oh you're just a miserable wretched person I can't believe you even get out of bed. The purpose is not to try to run down and try to devalue or dehumanize. Uh, The idea is not to try to rip somebody apart. The idea is to show the beauty of Christ and the beauty of what God has done and the beauty of why forgiveness and grace and mercy are so valuable in our daily lives. If we don't understand who we are or where we've been, we're not going to understand who we are now. And sometimes we give ourselves too much credit. We think we make better decisions than we really make. We think that we're smarter than we really are. And we fail to understand exactly who we are without God in our lives. So there's a motivation to understand that God has a standard and we continually miss that standard, but then there's another motivation that He gives us in verse 4. He starts off with these two words here in the English translation I'm looking at. But when? It harkens back to places like Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul is writing about who we were in our lost sinful state, but God, there in Ephesians chapter 2 and here in chapter 3, he reminds us, but when, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's reminding us that despite God having standards and despite us constantly failing at those standards and falling short of those standards. The third motivation is that God sent His Son despite our failures. Despite our failures, Christ still came to us. Despite not adding up, despite constantly missing the mark, God sent His Son to us. Verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to know why we should serve God with everything that we have for all of our lives? Is because He saved us mercy and we are now heirs of this eternal life he talks about in verse 7 he says you know what you know if you recognize what God has done for you then you will always give your life to following after him your motivation for showing up in church is not because oh I gotta go to church I'm tired your motivation is you get to come and say thank you you get to come and worship you get to come and be an encouragement you get to come and learn you get to come and be around other people you get to come and say here I am God I am presenting myself as a a tool in Your hand. Teach me, mold me, transform me, show me all of these things because, God, I realize that without You, I'm damned. Destined for hell. Eternally separated from God Almighty. So church isn't, I'm going to come and I'm going to say, there and through a class I'm going to sit here and try to sing I'm going to sit here and just endure a sermon I get to come and worship God why because God loved me so much that even though he has a standard and even though I've fallen short of that standard he still sent his son to come to me despite my failures it's one of those things when you wake up and you go I really don't feel like it well do you feel like saving yourself well, I can't do that. Well, I know you can't do that. God did that, and so where's the gratitude? Where's the attitude of gratitude? Where's the attitude that says, maybe I should say thank you every once in a while? This idea that we have this motivation, but sometimes, sometimes you find Christians, and I'm not saying you, but sometimes you'll find Christians, that they've forgotten what Christ has done for them. And all they're doing is they're thinking about what they're doing for Christ. So they start having this attitude, well, I do this for Christ, but Van doesn't. Van ought to do what I do. Well, God hasn't called Van to do what I do. God hasn't called me to do what Van does. But it's this attitude that we start this comparison, we start this contrasting, and I expect for everybody to do what I'm doing. Well, that's not what God has done. And then I start saying, well, everybody's got to do it my way because now I'm the standard that you all have to follow. No! No! I am not the standard. You are not the standard. Christ is the standard. We have fallen short, but the Bible tells us God still sent His Son to die for us to save us anyways. And yet it can be so easy for you and I just to fall into this rut of thinking this is sufficient. It's enough. Satisfactory. Right here in this season of life we have these precious charming children and they've got chores so one of their chores on a weekly basis is to sweep the floors one of their chores is to do the dishes another chore is to clean the bathrooms but as it goes they'll get the broom out and they'll get the dustpan out but you know what it is sometimes you miss some corners sometimes you don't move the furniture Sometimes you miss this spot over here, and it's easy to be in a hurry, or it's easy to miss this and think, oh, I'll do it later, or it's easy to skip and it's easy to let some stuff slide. And so, every once in a while, as a parental figure, you have to come in and say, You didn't do this, you didn't do that. And they always look at you with this crazy look, like, You want that swept? Yeah, I want that swept. Yeah. Yeah. It's your chore. It says the floor. It doesn't say half the floor, three quarters of the floor, or only the floor that's exposed in a certain type of room. It says four, period. It's this idea that I want you to do what you are supposed to do. And every once in a while, you have to come behind them, and you have to check them, and you have to hold their feet to the fire and encourage them, because so many times they can get in a state of laziness lackadaisical, they get in a routine, and they stop striving for the ultimate, and they start settling for the sufficient, and they start lowering their standard to the lowest common denominator. And sometimes in the church we can do the same thing. Nobody is evangelizing, so why should I evangelize? nobody's showing it for prayer meeting, then why do I need to show for prayer meeting? So we start making the standard of our lives being the standard of the lives of the people around us, and I'm telling you, that is a dangerous and that a very detrimental way of living when we are basing our standard off of everybody else, because then everybody's standard starts to go down. I don't know if you know the name, W.A. Criswell. longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. A, just a monumental figurehead. I think if somebody was going to have a Mount Rushmore of preachers, he would probably be on the Mount Rushmore of preachers. He was known that anybody that served on his staff, any male that served on his staff from 8 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon, they were to be in slacks, a shirt, and a tie and people would say they're just an administrative assistant or they're just this or they're just that why but he said we are going to have a standard we are going to have a standard that people are going to look a certain way that when people that way when people come they know that this person is on staff they know that this person is serving in the church and they know this person is part of the ministry here at First Baptist Church it carried over Dr. Patterson was the president of the seminary when I first started down there in Fort Worth and so you would have students that were also employees of the seminary, and you could tell who was a student employee because they always had slacks, a button-up shirt, and a tie on. And then you could see them. They'd be sitting in class, watching the clock, because they knew... as soon as it hit 5 o'clock they could take their tie off and they would be sitting right there in class and as soon as 5 o'clock rolled around they would all take their ties off and someone would even untuck their shirts because that was their saying hey I have now the freedom to do that but Dr. Patterson has the same attitude that we need to have standards now some people may say well that just seems a little bit uh, archaic or that seems a little bit extreme but their attitude was is that we need to have standards if we don't have standards then everybody will devolve to the lowest common denominator and if we don't have standards, then what will we be looking and pointing people to as standards for conduct and practice in the kingdom of God? Now when it comes time for the church it's not that we're going to legislate a dress code. Uh, There are churches out there that do legislate dress codes. Uh, We're not legislating a dress code. We're not legislating some of these other things, but in our Christian lives do we have standards? Or do we just simply say, well I'll do it if everybody else is doing it? Or I'll do it only if someone else is doing it? You see, Paul wants to remind the church and he wants to remind Titus that God has standards and He wants to remind them that this motivation is not because of themselves. This motivation is not because of the people around them. This motivation is because of what Christ has done in their life. And so He follows this up. This fourth motivation you see there in verse 8. This fourth motivation is that we follow what we believe. So He thinks about it, that God has a standard, that we've fallen short of that standard, that God sent His Son to die for us, despite us falling short of those standards. But then notice what He says in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy and I want... You to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So, Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, I want you to, what does he say? Insist on these things. What things are you to insist on, Titus? You are to insist on that those who have believed in God devote themselves to good works. Works. It's this attitude that Paul understood that people will follow what they believe in. If they believe in it, they'll go all the way. Back when professional sports was something that was enjoyable instead of some type of political statement, you used to have people and they would support these teams and they would support these games and you'd have people that would go for hours and stand in line for a game and they'd go and they pay too much for a ticket and they they go and they pay too much for the drinks and they go and attend these games. You have other events that people will go and they will stand in line for hours outside just to get inside the doors but because of their desire, because of their belief, because of their devotion and their commitment to that particular sport or that particular event they will go and spend the time the reality of the life around us is that we follow what we believe in and so Paul is reminding Titus Titus if they believe in God then tell them insist that they devote themselves to good works sometimes we have this attitude in the church this is is an obligation I gotta go to church I gotta help teach I gotta help us I gotta help with lunch. I gotta help with supper. I gotta go clean. Blah, 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 blah. It's only a burden if it's an obligation. And it's not an obligation, it's an opportunity to serve. You made the decision when you made the profession part of what we talk about when you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you call out in repentance and confession and ask to be forgiven, when you get saved what you are doing is you are professing your need for salvation you are crying out for forgiveness and you are professing that you are making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life and when you make that profession you are making the decision and that decision is, is now He is Lord of my life which means that whatever He says I will do, wherever He tells me to go, I will go. However he tells me to serve, I will serve. When you made the profession, you made the decision. And then you fast forward 10 years after that decision and we think, yeah I'm saved but I'm not committed. And nowhere in the Bible do you see confession without commitment. Nowhere in the Bible do you see people that have made professions but are not following Jesus. You will not find in the New Testament where you have faithful Christ followers that are not committed to the kingdom of God. You will not find it in your New Testament. You will find those individuals that claimed a profession, claimed a decision, and then have fallen away. Usually at the end of Paul's letters, he will talk about the people that have fallen away. He will talk about the people that have walked away. He will talk about the people that once were in the church and then have have apostatized or or they stepped away from their faith. He says, yes, there are those, but they were never the true confessors. Rather, they were just the conformers. They were the individuals that showed up, that went through the actions but there was never a heart change he says if you really have a heart change then you made that decision I had no idea when Eli was born what the future was going to hold none Jenny and I decided we wanted to have kids she got pregnant with Eli Eli was born in 2007 and 2007 when he is first born you have no idea what is coming ahead of you period And so then, for those of you that... Are beyond me. You look at other people and God, you have no idea. And even now, I'm in that stage that I can look at other individuals that are that are having children for the first time. And of course, they have all this idea, and especially those those first time parents. And they've got all this, all these books, and they've got all this plans, and they've got all these ideas. And I'm thinking, you'll get over that. I mean, you, you'll get you'll get past that. I mean, a lot of those things. I mean, I remember being there. But when you first are a first time parent, you have no idea what is coming up. But you do know this. You are now responsible. And you now have an obligation. Now I realize that we're living in a day and age where there are many parents in this world today that are abdicating their responsibility and they are stepping away i, I I'm talking about a, a, a young family. Uh, Denise and Van and I were talking about a young family just Wednesday night. Uh, They're connected to this church who were abandoned. Uh, father was sent away, mother abandoned them, and, and just this idea that we live in a day and age when that is a reality and that really exists. But for the majority of us, when we have children, we understand my life is now different. I now have a responsibility and obligation. I can't tell you what's going to happen next week. I can't tell you what's going to happen when he turns 13, 14, 15, 18, 25. I can't tell you what's going to take place with him, but I can tell you that as long as I'm alive and Eli, is alive, I'm going to be his father and I have a responsibility to be his father. Amen. And it doesn't matter whether... I like it. (laughs) It doesn't matter if He makes it easy. It doesn't matter if the weather is always fair and enjoyable. It doesn't matter if we always get along. My responsibility is to be His Father, and I have a responsibility for God to be His Father and to be a faithful father to Him, even if Eli is not a faithful son to me. I have a responsibility to be a faithful father to Him. And that is the same principle that we see when it comes to being a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. That our fellowship is not dependent upon the people around us. Our fellowship is not dependent upon the weather or the attitude or my personal feelings or emotions or my desires. My fellowship to Jesus Christ is dependent upon the fact that I believed in God, He saved me from eternal damnation, and now I have a responsibility to serve Him. So He tells us we follow what we believe. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. He says, devote themselves to good works. So that time when you wake up and you don't feel like it, that time when the motivation is strained, that time when you just are getting discouraged and getting frustrated, that time when you start having that pity party, God, I don't deserve this. God, how much more of this? God, why me and not them? God, I just need a break. God, I can't handle anymore. You start getting in those moments that this pity party starts dwelling. I think we need to remind ourselves that we follow what we believe in. And if we still believe that God is able and that God is sufficient, then what other hope do we have? And it may not always make sense. We may not always have the answers. I don't know what kind of shenanigans he's going to pull when he starts driving. There are... Still, things that I don't know that I don't know. But I can tell you this, no matter what He does or I does, I do between now and then, I'm still His Father and He's still my Son. And I don't have to have the answers. I just have to have the resolve to say, I'm going to be faithful. So he tells us. Paul is writing to Titus and he says, Titus, insist on these things. And then this final, this fifth motivation that I think that should drive us to our faithfulness before God is the reminder that distractions and temptations never end. Distractions and temptations never end. Look, Verse 9, see where I'm getting this from. He says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once than twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul wants to remind the reader, he wants to remind the church even today, that these distractions, these temptations, they never end. Satan never ends gives up. Satan doesn't take days off. Satan doesn't get tired. Satan doesn't feel sorry for you. Satan doesn't sit back and say, well, you know what? I've harassed Spence enough. Let me go harass Toby. Satan doesn't ever think, well, you know what? Maybe I should slack off. Satan is relentless. He's going to keep on going. We were at the Renaissance Fair up in Tulsa. They had the castle. They called it the castle, which was kind of a disappointment. What? Muskogee. Muskogee. What did I say? Okay. Well, close enough. The Same same part of the state on the map. Okay, so but Muskogee, they had this castle, they say. It's not... Well, anyway, so we were there for this Renaissance Fair and we were there as a family and there was this guy in like what looked like a, a Gilligan's Island boat. It was broken in half, kind of a run-down boat and he's sitting there behind this little storefront. Looks like a wrecked boat and he's selling pickles. That's all he's got. He's got some hat on with these horns looking stuff and he's got this barrel sitting in front of him in kind of the the boat front and he's just selling pickles. And he's sitting there, pickles! And he's just hollering, trying to sell pickles. Well, nobody's buying pickles. So then he would say, you know what we're in And he sees somebody walking cross. So, so Donna's walking pie and she has a funnel cake. And he'd say, Ma'am, you know what goes good with that funnel cake? A pickle. <laughs> and he just was constantly, not heckling like, like Bozo the Clown down at the state fair, but he was constantly trying to get people's attention. Constantly calling out, Pickles, pickles. All I'm trying to do is sell pickles. And so we were sitting there and I could hear this guy. And at first I thought, just stop, man. <laughs> go sell wooden swords or fake swords or go do something. I mean, who wants to give their entire day to hustle pickles that's all he had he didn't have anything else. it was just pickles but then the more I was listening to him I kind of started having respect for him because he was tenacious I did I did buy a pickle. I did not eat the pickle. Actually, I gave children money and I said, go buy pickles from that guy. Even if you don't eat them, go buy the pickles because of his tenacity. He was sitting there watching people go by knowing that people were going to ignore him, knowing that people were making fun of him, knowing that people were marginalizing him, knowing that people were just ignoring him and writing him off as just some loud mouth, person, people didn't care what he had to say, but he did not let the opinions or the receptivity of the people around him keep him from proclaiming his message. He was sitting there, pickles, and then he would say, you know what goes with that funny cake? A pickle. And then he would say, sir, you know what goes good with that outfit? A pickle. Ma'am, do you know what you need most in your life? You need a pickle. And he had all these different phrases of trying to get people's attention and let them know they needed A pickle. And the more I sat there and listened to that guy, the more I thought we need to have him do evangelism training. <laughs> because he wasn't—he he wasn't deterred by the first rejection. He wasn't discouraged by the tenth refusal. He was tenacious. He was resilient, and he continued to try to sell pickles and he even communicated that he believed these pickles were worth buying (laughs) and you can just imagine if we could get Christians today that would buy in that would have that much tenacity in their heart to tell people about Jesus despite being given the cold shoulder, despite the awkward moments if they just said I know that this is the most important thing that people need for their lives, they need Jesus and I'm going to preach Jesus to them and I'm going to continue to preach Jesus to them. Paul, notice he says there, he talks about these distractions. He says, but avoid foolish controversies. I'm back in verse 9. He said, but avoid foolish controversies. He's looking at the church. He's looking at Titus. And he's saying, Titus, church, I know Satan never gives up. Darkness never gives in. And I know even within the church and even within the pastorate, even within the ministry and the kingdom of God, dissensions, foolish controversies, these unprofitable, worthless things will crop up. People will stir up division verse 10, he's telling them that you need to understand that as long as the kingdom is on this earth, Satan will constantly be attacking the kingdom of God. Constantly. So why are we surprised when the spiritual warfare comes? Why are we surprised when the attacks happen? As long as there are people, there's going to be dissensions and divisions. He tells us that we're going to continually be under attack and under assault from Satan. Why are we surprised when people in the church squabble? Yes, it shouldn't be so. We should never have any difference of opinion when it comes to the life of the church. Every single one of us should show up and we should be completely led by the Spirit, completely following Matthew chapter 22, putting God first, loving God first, and loving others second. We should never have one single bad thought in our heart ever in the life of the church. I agree. Paul Paul was constantly telling us about his divisions and his dissensions. He was constantly showing us and telling us that even the apostle Paul was not free from those distractions that came along him. He was never free from those temptations. He's talking at the end of some of his other letters about the people that have left him. And the people that have abandoned him. Him saying, that, listen, Timothy, you're the only person I got left. Everybody else has left me. So why should we be surprised when distractions and divisions and dissensions come to life of the church? I'm not saying that we should welcome them. I'm not saying that we should accept them. I'm not saying that we should say it's no big deal. We should always try to strive for unity and love. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, let not let us not get discouraged or stopped or driven off of the path when those moments come. Rather, they should be motivations for us to try even harder, to strive even harder, to work even harder, because we know when those moments come, that's the work of Satan trying to drive us apart. So we should try we should be trying even more so to build up that unity and love. That Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, growing up in love. It's this idea that we should constantly be saying, I know that these attacks will come and so I want to do anything and everything I can to guard the unity and faith of the church. So there's some motivations. Some motivation is to know that God has a standard, a motivation that we know that we have fallen short of that standard, a motivation that we know that God sent his son despite my failures, and we follow what we believe, and we know that these distractions will never end. So Paul comes in looking at Titus and he says, Titus, I want you to understand that when the days continue and the moments continue, your motivation is going to be challenged. And the source of your motivation in that day will depend on your faithfulness and obedience to me. So let me give you a couple motivations that I want to leave you with for today or even tomorrow. Just two questions that I want to leave you with. First question is this. What difference will God's grace make in my life today? You know that you've been the recipient of grace upon grace upon grace. You know that you've been the recipient of God's grace when you didn't deserve it. You know that you've been the recipient of God's love for your life. So what difference, whether it's today or tomorrow or whatever day you wake up, what difference does God's grace make in your life? I think there's a lot of people that say it doesn't make any difference in my life. It should. The recognition of who you were and who you are. The recognition of what you were before Christ and what you are after Christ. The recognition that you don't have to go and offer a sheep every time you have a bad thought. The recognition that you don't have to save up and travel miles and miles by foot across a desert road to get to the temple to offer your sacrifices to try to gain atonement for your sin because you know that without that sacrifice, without atonement, you would die in your sin. The idea that you don't have to memorize the first five books of the Bible as a, a young Hebrew male just to be able and and just be, be accepted into the church this knowledge that all of these things all this Old Testament was there as a means of God saying this is how you get right with me the New Testament comes he sends his son and He says now what is required to be reconciled and faithful to me is faith and following my son so what difference does God's grace make in your life and then there's the second one whose pleasure am I living for You see, back up there at the start of chapter three he reminds them. He reminds them of this idea of being pleasure seekers. In fact he says in verse three, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hatred by others. He's this idea that we live in a world right now that I would be considered that I would call hedonistic. Used to that was a term that we had used for these islands or something sexual or something that was kind of a fringe thing. But today's world, we're living in a hedonistic Society. Everybody only wants what makes them happy. Everybody is only after their pleasure, their satisfaction. And this hedonism idea is saying that you are pursuing things for your pleasure and your pleasure alone. And so you have this hedonistic culture that it doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what the group needs. All that matters is what I want and what makes me happy. And this world is driven by trying to please you. And that's why we have a thousand different choices when it comes to items. That's why you can go to a, a restaurant or a fast food restaurant and they have those Coca-Cola fountain drink machines and it has a screen on there and there's like 150,000 different flavors. You go to Sonic and they used to have a banner that they had over 300,000 different drink combinations because everybody has bought into this Burger King idea that you can have it your way and it's all about what pleases you, what makes you happy. You go into a shoe. There's 40 different styles of shoes. Because it's all about what makes you happy. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's not about what makes you happy. It's about what makes God happy. And there has to be a switch in our minds that says, my life will not be defined determined or dictated by what pleases me or what pleases those around me but my life will be dictated and I will live for the pleasure of God that's my motivation my motivation is not my happiness my motivation is God's pleasure. My motivation is not my emotions or my feelings. My motivation is the authority and the standards of God. My motivation is not the opinion of other people. The motivation is not the comfort and ease in life. My motivation is to stand before God one day and hear, well done, that good and faithful servant.